Uh, good morning. Boy, that was not much of a response here. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, if I could have your attention, is Chris Norton here? Did he make it? No. Okay, I have the privilege of uh, being my own advertisement. Uh, next week, I, I have the privilege of speaking on grace and dependence. If some of you might remember that a year and a half ago, I spoke. And I expect you all remember everything I said, right? <laughs> well, um, for, for those of you who weren't here, because what I'm going to say next week builds, builds upon what I said a year and a half ago, I actually have some printed. This is why Chris Norton wrote this up for me. Listen to the lecture and wrote an article about it. If you're at all interested, you can come get a copy of the article. If you would like to listen to the lectures, I don't know if you know it, but Mark back there is recording all of these. And this would be the uh, internet address of where you can find all the lectures. Mine is on September 25th, 2016. You have to scroll way down for it. So if you're interested, I'll try to make sure that next week stands alone, even if you never heard the first one. But if you're interested, I have this information for you. Thank you, Bob, for letting, letting me be an advocate. Well, it sounds as though uh, the topic for next week fits right in with the uh, topic for today, <coughs> um, which is agency, agency and grace, maybe kind of the opposite of dependency in a way. Um, so let's begin by um, praying this sentence from the general thanksgiving prayer. Um, Let's pray. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. I want to try to answer a question with which I have come away from uh, the sessions of this, uh, this series again and again. Um, one way to put the question is, how can we integrate last year's catechesis topic, the virtues and how to acquire the virtues, with, um, with this year's topic of grace? Now you might wonder, well, uh, what's the question? <laughs> really, why, why, does that, why is that a question? I seem to have detected uh, a fair amount of Luther in what we've um, <laughs> been hearing this year. <clears throat> and that might be expected since Luther is the, the theologian of grace, uh, the, the, the purveyor of uh, sola gratia, or grace alone in salvation. Um, and people who are like Luther, and there are lots of them, uh, tend to be nervous about the virtues. They tend to be nervous about disciplines by which we, we uh, sort of become holy. And, the, uh, and on, on, the, on the other side, people who are uh, interested in the virtues and promote the disciplines of the Christian life uh, tend to be nervous about Luther. <clears throat> uh, here's what Jennifer Hurt has to say. She's a, a um, theologian at Yale. Uh, 
She has this uh, book called Putting on Virtue, The Legacy of the Splendid Vices. And in her book, she says this. Uh, For Luther, the aspiration to virtue is an expression of sinful self-assertion. And she says the natural life and the graced life are utterly discontinuous. And the natural aspiration to virtue thus blocks rather than advances true Christian righteousness. And that we should, quote, abandon our own efforts and rely wholly on God's grace to transform us from within. She says, Christian right, this is, this is all attributing to Luther, right, and, and uh, hyper-Augustinians. Christian righteousness requires the complete interruption of ordinary processes of habituation in the virtues and a foundational moment of pure passivity in which human agency is wholly abandoned. So, if you participated enthusiastically in last week, last year's catechesis, you are hereby under Lutheran censure. <laughs> in less uh, historical terms, uh, we've had we've repeatedly had questions uh, from the congregation uh, in in response to the talks that have been given this uh, this year. Um, questions by Hal Merck and Tim Newitt and Bob Roberts. Um, and the gist of these questions is, given the all-sufficiency and all-necessity of grace in Christian life, the sola gratia, what happens to our achieving anything or getting credit for anything or taking responsibility for our actions or taking responsibility for who, who we become? Um, what, what happens to our efforts to grow in the Christian life? Um, isn't there such a thing as cooperating with God uh, for his plan of our salvation? Now, we had a visitor, one of, the, uh, one of our speakers, Tim Blackman from Wheaton College, who expounded uh, Hermann uh, Kohlbrücke, the... Uh, theologian you've never heard of. <laughs> and uh, Kohlbrecht said, the flesh, that is to say the evil part of us, <laughs> the flesh wants to go Dutch with God. Um, now you might wonder, well, what does that mean? Um, I guess it means something like God pays his way and we pay ours, right? God does his part and we do our part. Um, or maybe it means um, God does his part and his part is making our part possible. Or maybe it means I do my part, 
completely out of my own resources, and God does his part completely out of his resources. It's a sort of equal partnership. Now, if that's what the flesh is suggesting, the flesh is dead wrong. But Kohlbrüche also says this. I think this is a quotation from Kohlbrüche. I didn't look up the original documents, but this is what I got uh, on my, in my notes from Tim's uh, talk. Kohlbrüche says, we, we contribute nothing to our salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. I think that must be wrong, too. <laughs> Let's see here. Yeah. Now, what, is, what does the Apostle Paul say? Paul says, Paul has, there, famously, there are two dimensions, you might say, to, to Paul's writings. There is the proclamation of grace and of uh, salvation by grace alone, or grace through faith. And then, at the, often at the end of the letter, but sometimes elsewhere, uh, there are all these directives about what to do. <laughs> and uh, all these uh, calls, calls for action, you might say. Um, and <clears throat> so, it looks as though Paul uh, does not think that um, salvation by grace alone implies that we have nothing to contribute. It's, that's, what it, that's what it seems to, to me to imply anyway. Um, so somehow, we are entirely dependent on God for our salvation, and yet we uh, we are still agents, right? We're still we're still responsible agents, people who who uh, who do things in a significant sense. Here's the passage from Ephesians that just really really sums it all up. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I'll, I'll tell you now what my conclusions are, and then we'll go on and try to deepen, the, deepen our understanding. Um, but my conclusion in this, uh, in this effort to bring together uh, grace 
and agency is that um, grace doesn't cancel agency, but, it, but instead it transforms agency. Agency becomes gracious. And, and I want the word gracious there to cover a lot of things that have to do with grace, like gratitude, generosity, forgiveness, um, faith in the sense of trust, trusting in somebody other than yourself. Um, and so the, I want to say that, um, that there's a kind of transformation that occurs uh, in proper Christian formation in which the grace of God is incorporated into our agency and our agency is transformed uh, in, in at least two ways. That the virtues that, that uh, drive that agency are different from the virtues that would be driven by, uh, say, Aristotle. Uh, and also that the very notion of agency, the very, the very con concept of a human being acting changes. And it changes in accordance with uh, this word that Paul uses in that Ephesians passage. He says, he speaks of walking. <laughs> the, the, the agency word there is walk in those good works that God has created beforehand that you should work, should, you should walk in. And I, I think that walking idea, and there are about 12 different um, Pauline verbs uh, in which, with which he expresses this. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later. Um, but those, those verbs indicate a, a kind of a change in, in what it is to be an agent, what it, what it is to perform an action. So let's think a little bit about what agency and grace are. Start with agency. So what's an action? I want to propose, this is a very Aristotelian kind of uh, concept of um, agency. It's a behavior that we undertake for a reason. <laughs> In other words, it's something we choose to do. <clears throat> and I mean, I want to be, I use the word choose in a very broad sense. It's not just, um, you know, carefully deliberated actions, but, um, but it's actions that we do for reasons. Um, uh, the, the contrast there between uh, with an action would be a reflex uh, uh, where you have a behavior all right but you don't you don't have a reason for the behavior the reason isn't getting a purchase on the on the behavior in such a way that you, it's your reason for doing it right so if you if you think about your heart beating you're, that's not something you're doing that's something that's happening within you or if the doctor you know taps your knee and your your leg goes reflexes goes up. That's not an action. That's a reflex. That's just a, it's a behavior, all right, but it's not, it is, it's not as though you intended to, <laughs> to move your, uh, your leg. 
Uh, it's just a mechanical thing that happens. And now Aristotle has this wonderful sentence. I just love this sentence. It's my favorite sentence in Aristotle. And it's a real mouthful, so get ready for it. Here we go. <clears throat> Choice is either desiderative reason or ratiocinative desire, and such an origin is a human being. <laughs> such an origin is a human. That's just a rich, really rich passage, because the idea is that reason and desire get completely integrated in, in a choice. Uh, you, you, have, you have the reason for which you're acting, and, you're, and, and that reason is, is expressed, you might say, in your desire to perform the action. And it works both ways. He says, desiderative reason or ratiocinative desire, because the, it, neither one of them has priority, right? Neither the rationality nor the desire has priority. So you might say, in, in other language, that choice is an, is an integration of understanding and desiring. Now, um, later in the talk, I want to dissociate ourselves from Aristotle and to, and to agree with Luther, actually, that Aristotle is, is, uh, is not somebody to, to take uh, whole hog, right? Uh, um, and in particular, I want to show you uh, uh, two lists of virtues, uh, 11 Christian virtues and 11 uh, Aristotelian virtues, and just show you how radically different these virtues are. The notion of what it is to be a fully functioning human being, uh, it gets transformed in, in terms of the, of the, the very virtues that are, that are proposed. Um, but for now, we're, we're, we're thoroughgoing Aristotelians, right? We just absolutely love this, this passage. Uh, it's just gorgeous. And, um, and so the question is, well, what is that, that idea that choice is desiderative reason or ratiocinative desire or uh, an integration of understanding and desiring have to do with grace? How does grace get transformed there? And the answer, I think, is that grace comes to us in a word, a logos, right? So the, the, this, the ratiocinative part, you might say, uh, in the Christian understanding of action is that, uh, is that, God, God has acted. We keep that in mind. Um, it's a, a grace comes to us by way of a message, a word, a logos, um, and that gets integrated with our desiring. Uh, when we participate in church life, but especially in worship, our agency is fed on on God's word of grace. It's, that's distinctively Christian rationality. Uh, worship is designed to affect both our understanding of ourselves, our life, and God, right? Transform our understanding. We're, we want to understand the world in a way, in a different way from a pagan, uh, distinctively Christian way. 
But it's also, worship is also designed to transform our caring, isn't it? To transform what we care about, what we love, what we seek, what we take to be our, the goals of our lives. Um, and so those, again, we have the, the sort of integration of understanding and desire uh, there in the, in the functioning of worship. Worship is rational <laughs> in the sense of uh, having lots of, lots of stuff about words, you know, and, and what to believe and so forth. Um, but it's also affective. It's, it's, uh, it's an effort to transform our, our emotions and our, our desires. Um, so, what would an action look like uh, here? I, I, I think of, uh, I hope this is okay with Roy, but, but I, I think of that letter that, uh, that Martin read to us uh, in the sermon maybe uh, several weeks ago. Uh, it was a letter from Gosha uh, to the congregation. And uh, she wrote this letter at, at, in very difficult circumstances, of course. Um, but it's an action she performed. Uh, she wasn't strong at that point, but she was able to, still able to perform an action. Um, she did it, and she had her reasons. Well, why did she do it? What was the reason? What was, the, what was driving her desire to, to write that letter, right? The, what, how, how was reason being uh, integrated into her uh, her desire so as to come out in this action of writing that letter to the congregation. Well, she wanted to know, wanted the congregation to know her gratitude to us uh, and to communicate to us her confidence in God's grace in which we all share. Her act was an act of generous ministry. So there was grace in, in, in the act. Right? It was, a, it was a, uh, saturated, an act saturated with grace. It was a chosen, deliberate, gracious action motivated by her sense of God's grace and a desire to pass that on graciously to the congregation. So grace is taken up in agency, and agency becomes saturated with grace in these in these uh, examples. Now let's talk about um, two aspects of grace. A moment ago we read that sentence from the uh, general thanksgiving prayer. And that sentence expresses very nicely basic Christian thinking about grace. It's one of those parts of the liturgy that, uh, that I was talking about earlier that, that has the effect of transforming our understanding of the world at the same time that it transforms our desires and our cares and loves. Um, and it says, let me just review, we bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. That's the sort of general grace, right? That's grace the grace of daily life, of, of the provision of things that we have. But then the second, of the se second half of the sentence uh, distinguishes this general uh, 
indebtedness from the central grace that sets Christian life apart from all other ways of living. And it goes on, but above all, for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. In receiving all the blessings of this life with joy from God's hand, we think of them as gifts from the same hand that brought us out of the miserable darkness of sin into the light of God's loving forgiveness, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, how is, um, how is um, agency affected by virtue? Uh, you know, we think agent, agency, act, actions are just uh, episodic occurrences that we perform, right? They, they happen at a given time and, uh, and then they're over. <laughs> the action is over, I guess. Uh, but, um, but virtues are traits. They are ongoing, they're dispositional, they're not, they're not episodic in the way that actions are. And so what's the relationship then between virtues and actions? Um, I think we've already seen uh, that in, within that uh, quotation from Aristotle, um, that the relation would be, in an action you have an, an episodic desire for something and, a, and, a, and an instance of understanding your situation, and those are were integrated together. But in the character traits that are virtues, you have a disposition to understand, a, rate, a sort of a deep understanding that goes with you throughout life, along with extended cares, concerns, interests that you have. Uh, now, this Barman Declaration is a document written in the 1930s against people who were trying to blend German National Socialism with Christianity. It was written by Christian thinkers who thought like Luther and Kohlberg, people who are serious, who are suspicious about virtue and the spiritual disciplines in the way that Jennifer Hurt describes. Um, and the, that one, one little passage from that, uh, that document says, as Jesus Christ is God's assurance of the forgiveness of all our sins, so, in the, is in the same way and with the same seriousness is also God's mighty claim upon our life. Through him <coughs> befalls us a, <coughs> a joyful deliverance from the godless fetters of this world for a free, grateful service to his creatures. So we see in that, in that little passage from the Barman Declaration uh, the same structure uh, that we see in Paul's letters, right? There's this uh, proclamation of grace, and then there's an exhortation to action. Um, to grateful service. <clears throat> but I want, to, I want to suggest that uh, Barth, Car Karl Barth, the main theologian who, who wrote the Barman de Declaration, and, and Kohlbrecher, and people like him, um, 
uh, they really need <laughs> the virtues to make sense of that of that uh, of that sentence. In particular, they need the virtue of gratitude, right? If you're if I mean if um, If we're going to take seriously God's mighty claim upon our whole life and express that in free, grateful service to his creatures, that's going to need to come from the heart, right? It's going to need to come from who we are, from the, from the sort of dispositions that have been formed in our, in our souls. It's not just something that occurs on a given uh, moment. But it's something that's developed over life by worshiping God and by fellowshipping with the with the Christian congregation. Um, let's see here. So you know, Jesus has this uh, story of the ungrateful servant. Um, it's basically the idea that uh, that a uh, a master forgave. A servant, an enormous debt. He was. He gave the servant a, uh, an enormous grace, um, and then the servant went out and uh, would refuse to give similar grace to a fellow servant of his who owed him money. And um, the um, the master, Jesus has the master say to the, to the second servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? So Jesus thinks that the, the uh, event of receiving a, of an enormous liberating grace uh, from God ought to make us gracious to, to, the, to, to everyone else. And that's sort of expressed in that Barman Declaration uh, sentence too. It's grateful service, right? Service, this is free service to, to, uh, to God's creatures. But Jesus also has uh, the parable of the tree and its, uh, and its fruits. And in this he seems to be uh, endorsing the, the idea of virtues. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There's a lot of stuff about inwardness in the teaching of Jesus. Uh, what, what's going on in the heart? Uh, he says, are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Uh, notice it's the, it's the character of the tree <laughs> that determines what kind of uh, fruit comes off the tree. Uh, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Right? You recognize them, who, who they are. You, you, you can sort of see what, what kind of an identity they have by what they do. Now, let's see. Me, yeah. Um, so I want to talk now about <clears throat> how 
grace transforms the, the very conception of what it is to be an agent. And I, I've got these, these uh, four theologians up here. That's a, sort of a joke because the last two are not supposed to be theologians. But, uh, <coughs> but the first one is, a, is an Islamic theologian from uh, the 11th century. Um, and he thought that God is the only agent, absolutely the only agent. So nobody does anything except God. Only God does things, <laughs> right? And, uh, <coughs> and he has this image of, uh, of a corpse that's laid out and somebody's washing the corpse and moving the hands and the fingers and so forth. And, and that's the image of what it is. He says, to have faith is to understand yourself as a corpse that is simply being, you know, manipulated by God. It's a very, uh, very radical, strange uh, picture of human agency. Uh, then we got Kolbrov, who, who thinks that we contribute nothing to our salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. He's not saying we don't do anything. He's just saying we don't do anything good, right? <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> so, uh, so he, he isn't, isn't as radical as Al-Ghazali. Uh, and then we have Aristotle who says that we're an origin of our actions. And I take it that that, or, that notion of origin has a, has a kind of robustness, right? I mean, you are really an origin. You actually originate things. You, you bring about things, changes in the world that would not be brought about if you didn't do them. Um, but Aristotle thinks that the best um, of our actions express what he calls self-sufficiency, autarkia. It's, uh, yeah, I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a moment. And then, there, and then we got Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the 20th century existentialist. And he thought that we originate not only our actions, but we originate all the standards by which we act. So he thought there's no such thing as human nature. Aristotle thought there are limits on what you should do because there are limits on what human, what human beings are, right? And ethics is a matter of trying to figure out what kind of a thing a human being is and then <coughs> deriving from that in a way uh, how, the, how a human being should act. Every species is supposed to act in, in accordance with its own telos, right? With its, with its own uh, nature. But Sartre thinks we don't even have a nature. We can create our own nature. We can create uh, the, the values by which we perform the actions that we perform. So that is really radical on the other end. I mean, you've got a, a sort of a continuum all the way from Al-Ghazali to Sartre, um, depending on what they think a human action is. So, uh, it's one of, the, one of the features of human agency, according to Charles Taylor, who's a, a Christian philosopher, um, living yet today, an old man though, um, According to him, he, he wrote an early paper called Self-Interpreting Animals. 
And the, and the idea is that human beings are, they're, they're distinctive in that they, that what they think they are determines in a way what they are, right? Uh, so, so we, um, uh, if you, if you were a, a, an Al-Ghazali follower, <laughs> you would uh, presumably have this kind of passivity that, that Tim knew it and, uh, and Hal Merck and I have been objecting to <coughs> throughout the, throughout the uh, uh, semester. And, um, and that would change, that would, that would transform your, your sort of self-understanding and it would transform also your, your uh, virtues, your moral formation would be different in virtue of how you understood yourself as an agent. So it's, it's important to uh, Christian formation that we understand agency correctly and not incorrectly. Um, so that's... Okay, let me... Um, Yeah, that's just, this slide just says what I just said. So then the question is, well, what is the biblical view of agency and how does it affect the biblical conception of, of virtues? And here's the, here are the lists. Uh, I think there are 11 uh, virtues on each list. Uh, the the one on, ones on the right are Aristotle's. I don't know whether you can see those, but... Uh, um, those are the lists, those are just the virtues that Aristotle actually names in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, so, and, and he gives different uh, degrees of weight to, the, to different virtues. Uh, Justice gets a whole book, <laughs> book five of the, of, the, of the overall book uh, is on justice. Courage gets a fair, fair amount in temperance, but uh, not nearly as much as justice, and so forth. Um, and then this list over here on the left is a, is a list taken from the letters of the Apostle Paul. Um, and those virtues, uh, that's not all the virtues that Paul mentions there. Are, you, could, you can find others, but I wanted just 11 because uh, Aristotle had 11. Um, <clears throat> now, let me just make a few uh, com comments about these. You'll notice that Compassion doesn't occur in the Aristotelian list, but it does occur in the, uh, in the Christian list. However, Aristotle does have a discussion of compassion in his book, The Rhetoric. And in that uh, book, he says that it's a condition of proper compassion that the sufferer, the person about whom you feel uh, compassion, has not, is not uh, responsible for the suffering that he's suffering. So if you got yourself in trouble, if you're, su you're just suffering the consequences of your own bad choices, you don't get any compassion from Aristotle, right? <laughs> um, and that, that is so characteristic of Aristotle because justice is the big thing here. If you deserve to be, uh, to be suffering, then by golly, we're not gonna feel compassion for you, right? Uh, <clears throat> and but, and then you have the parable of the prodigal son in the, uh, in the New Testament 
in which uh, the son comes to the father uh, after his downfall, and he just he confesses. He says, "Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I don't deserve to be anything but your servant. I don't even deserve that." Uh, and the father just embraces him with compassion. The, 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 the parable itself says he felt compassion and was moved. Uh, <clears throat> so that's one, one example. Another really big example that you don't see in uh, Aristotle is gratitude. Um, gratitude uh, doesn't not only doesn't occur in, uh, in the Aristotelian list, but it is uh, almost a kind of quasi-vice to be grateful. Uh, and it goes back to that idea of self-sufficiency. And he, Aristotle says um, that... Um, well, he says that the great-souled man, the, the person who exemplifies the virtues to the highest possible degree, um, does not, he, he, he likes to confer benefits, but he does not like to receive them because to receive benefits is to be inferior, and he doesn't want to be inferior. So you get a little taste there of how a, a, a virtue system that is completely lacking in grace uh, works and how it, how it has implications throughout the whole formation of, the, of character. On the contrary, uh, gratitude is very central in the Christian outlook and you might even say that it's the cardinal sin, uh, the cardinal virtue, in in uh, Christianity. You notice that we <coughs> we celebrate the Eucharist every every Sunday, and Eucharistia, the the Greek word for Eucharist, uh, simply means Thanksgiving, thank thankfulness. And uh, so the communion service is a service in which we are expressing our our thankfulness to Jesus and thus communing with him, right? Communion with Jesus is communion in gratitude. Uh, and, and gratitude is all, all, I mean, I know that faith, hope, and love are, the, are, are the, supposed to be the, the, uh, the cardinal virtues, <clears throat> but, um, but actually faith uh, requires gratitude, doesn't it? I mean, and, and, and gratitude requires faith, if you, if, if, at least Christian gratitude requires faith. Um, and, and Christian gratitude is a kind of love. You're, you love the benefactor, uh, and uh, so forth. So, well, I think uh, we didn't, I didn't leave any time for discussion because I didn't want anybody to raise objections. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know, do we, are we really out of time? Or? Yeah, yeah, a couple of oh, okay, a couple of minutes. Well, then why don't we just go ahead and... Uh, and Eva, I'll be vulnerable. I'll depend on your grace. While you were talking, I had in mind that uh, those two soldiers that rushed the terrorists, 
everyone else would flee, they fought, they went forward. The, the child, when you're on the train platform, the child falls on the tracks and the person just runs, gets, gets the job. Because what you're presenting, it sounds like this is all rational. We decide these Oh, I see. Okay. But, I, but I'm seeing these incidents and, and others like those, that's who they are. They, they yeah. chose it down the road to yeah. have these virtues become a part of who they are. Yeah. And now they're reacting. They're not, they're, they're not deciding. There's yes. not really choice there. It's yeah. more their natural outward. That's a helpful, uh, helpful uh, counterexample. <clears throat> Um, I, I, I tried to say uh, that when I talk about choice, I'm talking about it in a very, very broad sense. And that, that broad sense would include the person who just spontaneously rushes to the, to the aid of somebody else. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking that that incorporates all of the, the kind of uh, thinking and um, Formation that that person has had over over his life, which just comes out in that spontaneous action. So uh, the person might very well, if you if you ask the person, well, why did you do that? Uh, the person might say, well, look, the, there was there was need. I uh, somebody needed to rush those terrorists. Somebody needed to jump and uh, save that kid. Um, or the person might just say, I have no idea. Right? <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Uh, and, um, you know, the rescuers, people in, in, uh, uh, who were interviewed post-World post War II uh, who had rescued Jews were asked sometimes, why did you do that? And they, they would say things like, well, anybody would. Or, um, you, one had to do that, you know. They would feel as though that was not a free action. They, that was just something they, they had to do. Uh, but, but I would suggest, and I think Aristotle and, and the Christian tradition would also suggest that that comes out of a background of training, right? That they, these people had been going to church for a long time <laughs> and worshiping God and, and absorbing all these virtues of grace. And, uh, okay, Chris? Yeah, yeah. You certainly would want to distinguish the uh, the action of these heroes from a, a reflex movement of your of your limbs or something. It's not irrational in that sense, right? It's not non-rational. It's not just reflexive. Uh, they they do it for a purpose. It it makes sense in the context. Right? It's a thank you very much. Thank you.